Good morning again. Hey, show of hands. Who in here travels across the Trenum Bridge or the Lower Borough Bridge? Oh boy, you guys got some trouble coming your way. If you don't know, that bridge is going to be shut down next week. So there's going to be a detour maybe across the New Ken Bridge. If you're from Sarver area that way, maybe come through Freeport and come across Freeport Bridge. But that's going to cause a little bit of trouble. So I encourage you maybe to wake up a little bit extra early um, coming next week. But like I said, I get to kick off a new sermon series, uh, The Letter to the Philippians, a a series called Unstoppable Gospel. And if you don't know me at all, I'm going to move around a lot because I can't stay still. So just get used to it. That's what's going to happen here this morning. So my job this morning is to, to set a foundation, to lay a little groundwork so we know how to approach this letter. I need to build a foundation that we can build upon as we go through this letter and give us a little bit of context. So half of this sermon is going to be a little bit academic, in a sense, to get us up to speed. So as we start, Acts 16, this is where this all comes from. So if you want to read it, go go read that on your own time. But Acts 16 is the account when Paul and Timothy go to Philippi to plant this church. Now, Paul is led by a vision that takes him to this area. He's led by a vision to preach the gospel to these people. And he, as he goes there, he sees these women praying, and he preaches the gospel to them, and namely a woman named Lydia. She's the prominent character in the story. She gets saved. Her household gets saved. A change happens in her, and a new life is, is given to her. Now, what's important to recognize with Lydia is as soon as she was saved, she wanted to be a part of Paul's ministry. That's what we want to take away from that. So Paul continues to preach the gospel in this area, and he is followed by a slave girl, a slave girl that has a spirit. And Paul, it says in scriptures, gets greatly annoyed by this slave girl. I don't know. She, the slave girl who's affected by the spirit continues to say, these men who bring this message of salvation are servants of the most high God. Now, that's not a false statement at all. But I, I feel like it's kind of like moms, like when your kid's just grabbing on your leg, it's like, mom, mommy, mom, mama, mama, mommy, mama, 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 mama. And you're like, just stop it. I think that's what's happening to Paul here. In some way, this, this, this little slave girl was debilitating his mission in some sense. So what does Paul do? Paul calls the spirit out of this little girl in Philippi. Now, the problem with that is this spirit-filled girl had a talent to tell the future. And that made her masters very rich and profitable. So Paul had just essentially taken the money that they would receive out of this little girl. So what do they do? They're not happy, right? So they drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace, and they get beaten, they get flogged, and they get thrown into jail. So this is where the story you might recognize, the Philippian jailer gets saved, right? So Paul and Silas are in jail, and what happens? A big earthquake happens. A monumental event happens in there. The doors get blown off their hinges. The shackles fall from the prisoners. And the jailer is ready to fall on his own sword, take his own life, because he knows taking his own life is way better than what's going to come if the Romans get him for leaving his post or letting this event happen. So Paul says to him, don't kill yourself. We're all here. Do not kill yourself. 
And he asks, how do I be saved? You know, he's moved by this monumental event, and he gets saved. Paul preaches the gospel to him. Him and his whole household get saved. They get baptized. And here, again, a new life is given. A new life is formed in the jailer. And what does he do? He cares for Paul and Silas's wounds immediately. Immediately. So that's the story of how the church got planted in a nutshell. High view. Read, read it in Acts 16. When this letter was written, Paul was in prison again years later. So Paul got kicked out of Philippi. They're like, just, just leave. Just leave. We don't want you here. But as he left, he continued to, to spread the gospel message around the, the surrounding areas. And the Philippians continued to support him with prayer and with finances. From day one, they continued to support him. That's what we want to recognize in this letter. The partnership between Paul and the Philippians started on day one, and it grew deeper and deeper. So as Paul's sitting, rotting in jail, in shackles again, as Paul always seems to find himself in hard circumstances, this letter is coming after another gift has been sent from the Philippians by one of their own, so the letter is going to be full of graciousness, thankfulness, appreciation. So with that, let us at least read Philippians 1, chapter 1, 1 through 11. So open up your Bibles. It'll be on the screen beside, behind me and follow along. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partner in the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Verse 9. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's our text this morning. That's our text. So Paul, so Paul, Fred, Fred gives me a, a, an opening to a book and a, and a greeting is what, what Fred lets me preach on this morning. <laughs> so first two things that I want to hit on in verse one. We can, we can read past verse one very quickly. What does it say again? It says, Paul and Timothy Servants of Christ Jesus. Seems pretty standard. Seems like dear John, comma, yada, yada, yada. But let me contrast that to a couple things that Paul wrote when he started some other letters. The appearance of a standard greeting may not be the case here. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. A little bit different. 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission 
nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Do you hear the difference? Do you hear Paul is using his, his authoritative position in those other letters? And he's not doing that so much in this letter. Let, let, me, let me try to illustrate the difference of tone here. So maybe you're on vacation. You're sitting in a hotel room. You're expecting somebody to come, and you get two knocks in this illustration. First knock. Room service. Well, you get out of bed. You approach that door. You know how to approach that door. You open the door looking to receive your overpriced, soggy, wet food because they always put it over the dome on and it just drips all the time. But you know how to approach that door. There's nothing happening in you in, in terms of like being, being nervous or butterflies. You know how to approach that. But how about the second example? Police, open up. Now you're like, if you're laying in bed, you're like frozen. You don't know what to do. You have butterflies in your stomach. You start thinking about, where did I park? Did I back over somebody and I didn't know it? Where are my kids? Who had this room before me and what did they do in here? Why are the police at my door? I'm gingerly walking up to that door, looking through the people and wondering how to approach this situation. The proclamation of an authoritative position will dictate how you approach someone or something. Something, in this case, the letter. So we don't see Paul doing that. And that's, we must recognize that tone. Paul's not doing that. Now, is that because Paul doesn't have the authority? No. What did these people do? They, they've, they were changed immediately by these events that happened. They know Paul has this authority. They know Paul is an apostle. They don't need to be told it again. They immediately partnered with him. Now, we know from the other letters that there was problems going on. Paul needed to correct some things going on in those churches. So we, we can see Paul flexing his authoritative muscle, but we don't see that here. So it's, it's important Along, alongside of background and context to recognize the tone of this letter. The tone is a little bit different. Second, I'm not going to hang on this one, but I can't move on without at least touching on it. In verse 1, who is this letter written to? Don't say the Philippians. I know that. That's the title of the book. In verse 1, who was this letter written to? Let me read it, half of it. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Who are the saints? Who are the saints? If you stop there, you might, you might think, well, maybe that's the leaders. Right? Anytime the Bible uses the word saint, it means like separated or made holy. Maybe that's the leaders of the church. But thankfully, Paul continues with a comma there. Well, at least the translation has a comma. Including the overseers and the deacons. Well, it's not the leaders. So who is the saints? Believers. The believers are the saints. You might think, at least I grew up with, like, I thought saints needed to be in stained glass. Like, that's how I grew up. I, I didn't know that a, a believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. But you are. Paul says so. You are a saint. You have been made holy. You have been set apart if you are a believer in Christ. That's good news. You are a saint. You are a saint, and that is important to recognize. I'm not going to dwell on that because we, we have a lot to get through here. <laughs> See how that worked, Fred? Thanks. 
<laughs> All right. So we are going to get to this, actually. So we've touched upon the background, the context, the who, the what, the why, the when. But now, let us try to understand the importance of a partnership. So I was writing this sermon over the Memorial Day weekend. Everybody have a good Memorial Day weekend? Yeah? Good? Okay, one person. That's awesome. (laughs) Weather was kind of crummy, but it turned around. So I was was thinking, and I'm thinking of my childhood. I'm like, how how can I illustrate the importance of a partnership? So I remembered as I was growing up, I remember this stack of World War II letters that my grandfather had written my grandmother. And I'd like to share one of those to illustrate something about a partnership. Because because we must remember in the context that this letter was written, Paul, again, was in a hard circumstance. He was under Roman imprisonment again. And the Philippians were his partner. So let me... Let me get this letter out here. So here, a little interesting fact. If you write something that you shouldn't have, the government will cut it out of your letter. (laughs) But I also know where I've gotten my chicken scratch, so I actually have typed this out, so I'm going to read from that one. It says, somewhere in France, January 17th, 1945, 76 years ago and four months today, it says, Anne... That's my grandmother. Just a few lines to let you know I'm still knocking around this cold France. For a long time, we didn't have enough time to eat or get any sleep, let alone doing any letter writing. Recently, I was sent behind the lines on a special detail, so I'm taking advantage of the opportunity. From there on, misery started and still is. Riding in open trucks in zero weather over the mountains was no joke. We hid a town thinking we'd get a break, but rumors spread and we caught wind that the enemy was planning an attack on our arrival. Our outfit is jittery, and no sooner when we had our foxholes dug in, we would be moving out again. Shortly after, our unit was called to knock out a machine gun position, and this is when it got worse. It took four days to clean out the town. It was here we got our first sting of war on a small scale. All of us had something to tell. I won't forget the two shots a sniper fired at me when they counterattacked us. I froze like an ice cake, and I burned up like an oven in a split second. I couldn't move. I just waited for the next one to get me. What a feeling, he says. What would possess a man to continue in those circumstances? What, what is that drive that continues somebody in something that is so hard and so difficult? I think by, by evidence, we can think of two things. One, you believe in the mission. You believe in a mission worth fighting and dying for. You believe, at least at the time, in a mission that placed you in that circumstance. And two, by the evidence of this folder, because this is all letters, there's importance to a relationship back home. There's importance to something worth fighting for. There's something worth fighting for. Like, who is that bedrock? Who is that foundation that you know they are in your corner no matter what? Like, he continues to say, like, I can't wait to hear from you. Can't wait to hear from you. Like, it's that, man, it's that, 
just feeling that somebody has your back no matter what. They believe in your mission and they love you and they want to support you even though they can't be there with you. This is what we need to understand that Paul is writing to. These people have have supported Paul so much from day one on. As soon as he got kicked out, they supported him financially, spiritually. They never left his side. They never left his corner. But with that, let us finally get into this, the meat of the scripture here. So we have the background, we have the context, we have all these tools to, to, to approach this letter and understand it in the way that Paul was writing it, which is important when we approach the text. So let's read verse 3 through 5, and we'll break it down. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Let's fill something out. Be a gospel partner and pray for gospel partnerships. Be a gospel partner and pray for gospel partnerships. Paul gives thanks to God, but he makes it personal. He says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. This is because of the the prior support that the, the partnership has formed from day one. He's rotting in jail, shackles, Yet, this remembrance that he has of this great partnership, what does that allow him to do? It allows him, he thanks God for the remembrance of it, but it allows him to pray with joy in that hard circumstance. Think of him in his jail cell just smiling. I know, I know that they have my back. They're sending comforts to me right now because they are partners with me and believe in this mission. They find value in this. As Christians, we are called to co-labor with Christ. We are called to be a gospel partner. We can view this, this this letter is a little bit unique because we can view either side of this letter. right? You can view it as Paul in a hard circumstance for the gospel. Well, you can view that as maybe a missionary or maybe your own personal ministry that you want support. You're looking for, you're praying for a gospel partnership to come alongside you, to support you, to have somebody in your corner. But you can also look at the example of the Philippian church and how they were a partner to somebody else. You know, they, they weren't able to do what Paul was doing But that's not to say that you don't get behind somebody that can do something that you can't do, maybe because of your circumstances or whatever. So we can look to the example of the Philippian church. From the first day they were saved, they moved into action. They were moved into action. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And as we think about their partnership, we must think like this. Who could write us a letter? Now, this is individually and corporately as a church. Who could write Redemption Church a letter and say, 
man, thank you. Thank you so much for partnering with us. We are in hard circumstances right now, but we know that you have our back. We thank you for your support. We thank you that the believers, the saints of your church continually pray for us. Who could say that? Who could say that? How about in Paul's position? Maybe you have a ministry. Who could you write a letter to and say, thank you. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for partnering with me. Thank you for being in my corner and supporting my vision, my ministry, and finding value in it. That is a humbling thought to think. Is that something that we could do? Let's move on to verse 6. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So this sermon series is probably going to rock a lot of our calendar verses, right? The ones that we like to tell people to make them feel better. And they're not always necessarily bad, like extra biblically and the other parts of the Bible we can kind of glean from and, and, and make it work. But, you know, like when, when you might use this verse, like a kid's studying for his SATs, and he's like, well, God, he's going to start, that's good work that he started in you, he's going to finish it. He's going to finish it. But what is the context that Paul is saying here? What is that good work that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus? Let's fill something out. Have assurance that salvation will be completed. Your salvation will be completed. What's the good work? The good work that was started was Paul took the gospel message to this region and lives were changed. The only reason that they're doing what they're doing is because their life has been changed, because it's counterintuitive. You don't do this stuff naturally. You need to be affected and changed by the gospel. A new life has been given to them. A new perspective, a new heavenly purpose has been given to these people to support Paul. And he recognizes it. No matter what sacrifice that they're making, financially, of their time, their talents, sending a messenger, the sacrifice that that guy had to leave and travel and go take a gift to Paul, no matter what sacrifice they're making, he's saying, your salvation's secured. It doesn't matter what you're giving up because the thing that you have is secured. The salvation that you have is secured in heaven for you. It's but a but a drop in the bucket. Whatever you give up in the name of Jesus Christ to further his gospel message is but a drop in the bucket compared to the eternal weight of glory that he has prepared for you. That is good news. That is what we should have assurance in. So the question is, does our life and the fruits of our life show and play out like we have assurance in our salvation. That will stab you in the stomach. How we conduct our lives, things that we invest in, our time, our talents, our treasures, the things that we do with our life, does it show and scream out, 
I have assurance in my salvation, in my Lord Jesus Christ for what he did for me on the cross. And everything in my life is compared to that. Are we so radically changed, like the example of the Philippians? Are we so radically changed that we're, we want to move into action? Or are we on the, on the sidelines? Are we on the sidelines? Because the comfort in knowing that our, our salvation is secured and that he will complete it is we're called to participate in it, not complete it. Called to participate in it, not complete it. God will complete it. You won't. You won't. Now, let me pause there for a minute and care for us if we're not walking in this. Right? I believe the gospel message. I believe it's changed my life, but I have not moved into action. Well, that's why you're here this morning. You know, we may feel convicted, but conviction is not necessarily a bad thing. It moves us. It, it pushes us into turning around, repenting, and, and just doing something different with our lives. The mercies of God are great. And it's not that we continue to go on in sin, as Paul says, by no means. We don't want to cheapen the cross. But we should recognize what we're doing with our lives and change it. So there is grace there. There is mercy there. So don't beat yourself up on it. But in one sense, I don't want to push that down so low that you're like, okay, I'm good. Because that's not it either. That's not it either. Verse 7 and 8. Indeed, it is right. So Paul is just going to bleed emotion here. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you all are partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense of the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affections of Christ Jesus. Paul's heart's pouring out here. I know all this is true. I, I can feel it. I can feel it. Becoming a true partner, this is the next point. Becoming a true partner requires true buy-in. You don't want to approach a business deal with bringing nothing to the table, right? Like you either have a talent or you have, you have money, you be a silent partner. You have something. So becoming a true partner in the gospel means you have true buy-in. The same grace that saved Paul is on the road to Damascus, the same grace that, that stopped him in his tracks, made him change, is the same grace that was felt by the Philippian church. They are partners in this same grace. The same saving grace is what changes lives, and they're partners in it. So to be a true partner, you must believe in the gospel. That grace must have been felt in your life to be a true partner. You, if, if you're not saved, or if you don't believe the gospel, you find no value in it. There's no value in it. It didn't change your life to move you into action. It doesn't do anything for you. You don't care. You must be changed by that gospel message to be a, a true partner. 
So, the question is, have you been saved? Have you been saved? Have you received the gospel message? Do you know the gospel message? Do you believe that you are a sinner and that your sin needs paid for it and you believe that Jesus came, died on the cross, atoning for your sins and was resurrected? And do you believe that? And I'm not saying, do you believe in a bunch of facts, right? That slave girl in the beginning believed, believed in facts. These are servants of the Most High God and obviously knows the Most High God. It's not wrong. I think the best way to illustrate your faith in something is like this. So imagine a chair up here. You have a chair, and you look at that chair, maybe one of these chairs. Well, that has metal legs. I believe that would hold my weight. That cushion looks comfy. I think that would support my butt. The back, that looks strong enough to hold my back, especially because I like to lean back on my chairs. So what we do as Christians, we believe all these things about this chair. So we'll, we'll take this chair, and we can maybe put a foot on it. Like, yeah, we'll test this out. This, this is like what happens like when you're coming to faith, especially. Yeah, test this chair. It seems like it's going to hold me. Maybe walk around, kind of lean on the back. Just keep circling the chair. But you don't have faith, and you don't trust that chair until you plant your butt in it. And let it hold your weight. That's the difference between believing just merely facts and trusting and believing in Jesus Christ. Have you trusted and believed in Jesus Christ? I invite you to do that today. There is no better time to do it than right now. We do not know when he's coming, but we know he will come. And we want to be sitting in that chair when he comes back. So that chair is where we find the value. We find the value in our own lives and what it did to us that radically changed us to do something. That value is why we will partner with somebody. And that buy-in is our life and our living sacrifice. That is our buy-in. But he also goes on to say that there they're partners with him in, in, in the gospel and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's why I asked, do you know the gospel? As a believer, do you know the gospel? Can you just say a couple words like I just did to, to communicate that gospel message? Because what did the Philippians do? They were partners in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. If somebody is bringing a charge against the gospel, they could defend it because they know it. If they're telling somebody about the gospel, they can confirm it because it changed their lives. That's what we need to do with our lives as Christians. Our job is to defend the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's our job. Be a co-laborer with Christ. Defend the gospel message. Push that gospel message further into this world, that is our job, to participate in it, but not complete it. Verse 9 through 11, Paul is going to offer up a prayer. This is where Paul offers up a prayer. 9, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, 
so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's fill out our our last point. We grow in love when we learn more about God's love for us. We grow in love when we, when we pursue God and learn about how God's love came to us. Paul offers up another prayer in a different book. He offers up this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, 16 through 19, which may just give us a little bit more light into what he's talking about. He says this, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Hey, there's the word saints again. What is the length and the width, the height and the depth of God's love? And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Love comes from God, and it comes in the form of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you. That is the beginning of love. If you're a believer in Christ, the greatest love has been shown to you in that gospel message. The transformation in your life is the greatest, greatest love note that you can ever, ever realize. And 1 Peter, or yeah, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. We think we know how to love as people, but we only know how to love by example. And that example is from Jesus Christ. The gospel message is how we love. It starts there. But as I try to wrap this all up into a ball, how do we continue to grow in love? Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, I swear you can, you can apply Romans 12, 1 and 2 to any sermon. And I fought against that, but I'm, I'm going to go back to it. I'm going to go back to it. Romans 12, 1, and I'm going to stop and talk as I go through this, this verse here. Therefore, brothers and sisters, therefore, saints, Therefore, believers in Christ Jesus, in the view of the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? The mercy of God, again, is that gospel message that changes your life. Paul says, in view of that, brothers and sisters, saints who believe in Jesus Christ, in view of what has happened in your life, in view of the mercies of God in your own life, he says, I urge you. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, that's counterintuitive. Anytime I think of sacrifice, I think, you know, you've got to think Old Testament sacrifice where you kill something and you're putting its blood somewhere. So this is a little bit weird. How can I be a living sacrifice 
die and live at the same time. But as a believer, you have been crucified with Christ on that cross. And the life that you now lead is not your own. It's not your own. Your old self is dead. So what do you do with your new life? Because you're still here in the flesh. You're still here in the flesh. We must put off those things in the flesh. We must wage war with things in our flesh that are keeping us from obeying God. Keeping us from obeying God. So I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. That's your true worship. How do you worship God? With your life. Is that too much for you? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Am I willing? Do I find value in the gospel? Do I find value in what he has done for me so much that I'm willing to lay down my life and make Jesus Lord over my life because I believe what he has for me is better than anything? That's what we need to think. Are you willing to do that? That's believing in the gospel. That is your true worship. You were created to worship. You pick what you worship. You either pick the world, pick money, pick your family, pick your kids, pick your wife, pick your nose. I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't help but do it. <laughs> but you get to pick what you worship. He goes on in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this age. If you have been around me at all, you will know that I will say, if the world, that verse is a great litmus test, put it that way. That if the world is going this way, and after, maybe after Sunday morning, you just kind of find you get in your lane and you're continuing to go that way, you have to ask yourself, are you being conformed to this world? Because the world hated Jesus. And he says the world's going to hate you as a follower of Jesus. So when you walk out these doors, when you are conducting your normal life in work, in play, in sports, are you just, are you finding your way? Are you finding your groove with the world? Or are you swimming against the current and going against the world? Because as you go against the world, when you swim upstream, you got to fight a lot harder. You make some waves in the water. And you better expect that. And you better do that. Because that's what you're called to do. The world hated Jesus. So as a follower of Jesus, you better expect to be hated. You better expect it. So do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good and pleasing in the perfect will of God. Sounds very similar to his prayer, both of those. The renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? It's that new life. Again, it goes back to the gospel. It sounds so repetitive, but that is it. The gospel that changed. You preach the gospel to yourself every single day of your life. So you can look at, in the view of mercies of God... 
I can remember those mercies in my own life that I can die to myself and live for Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day, realizing what has been done for you on your behalf. That will renew your mind. Praying will renew your mind. Seeking God in his word will renew your mind because you do not know how to love unless you understand how God's love came for you. So seek him in his word. And here's the best news. The best part about Jesus leaving was he gave his spirit to us. His spirit dwells in you as a believer. It gives you power to swim upstream. That's good news. That's how you change your mind. That's how you renew your mind in a way that you can be effective partner for the gospel message. You find value in it. So I'm going to leave you with a couple things. Growing in God's love will only result in loving the things that God loves. That's what will happen. That's what will happen. You will love the things that God loves as a result of seeking him and finding him in his word. Growing in God's love will only result in you loving the blood-bought bride of Christ, his people. The thing that he came to save is of value. So it's, it's hard to hear, and I know that there is, there's always hurt in a church, right? That's, we live in a fallen world. That's, there's always hurt there, so I understand that. But as a believer, we must grow in love to overcome things like that, to appreciate the value that he places on the church. He loves the church so much that he, he, he came to earth to die for it. So as believers, we can't, we can't be up in arms to, to, towards the church, towards one another. We must be unified in the body. If we grow in love, we will love what he came and died for. Growing in love, growing in God's love, will only assure you of your salvation. Growing in God's love will only assure you further of your salvation in Christ. And that's important because that assurance is where we find confidence. That's where we find ourselves to say, it's okay for what I am going to give up. Because what he has done for me is so much greater. And I have a promise that he is going to complete it. Apart, apart from me, which is even better assurance, because we screw everything up. Apart from me, my assurance of salvation is rock solid because of what Jesus has done for me. And no matter what I give up, it's but a drop in the bucket compared to what I gain through Christ Jesus. And finally, growing in God's love will result in gospel partnership. It must. Growing in God's love and realizing your salvation, you can't help but do what the Philippians people did. 
They wanted to partner in that ministry. Why? Because they were so radically changed by the gospel message in their own life that they couldn't help but do it. If you have this, you have this treasure that saved your life, how can you not be a part of saving other people's lives? Giving them the opportunity to hear the gospel message, partnering with somebody that's taking that message to maybe somewhere that you, you, you can't go. Maybe an overseas missionary. But you also must be a gospel partner in your own life. If you believe it and you find value in it, then Sunday morning is not the only place that you should hear it. You must have personal responsibility to seek him on a daily basis. You must approach him in prayer. You must, men, shepherd your family. Raise your children up in the Lord. Sunday should not be the only day that your children hear the gospel message in kids' ministry. That's your job. That's your job. We come here to worship together, to glorify his name as a body of believers unified. But we must proclaim the gospel message every single day in our lives and be a gospel partner to others and for others. So at this time, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and get ready to lead us back in worship. This is our time to respond. As a church, this is our time to respond in a way that where we find value in what Christ has done for us. And it's scary. When I first came to Christ, I would sit in the congregation with knots in my stomach. Like, man, I... Oh, I just, I kind of want to display what I'm feeling, but I'm going to suppress it so much because I'm a man and I don't want anybody to see. To be honest, that's, what, that's exactly what I, I would do. But this is our chance as believers. The world is against you. We're not against you in here. It's okay to, to worship God in a way that he wants to be worshiped in spirit and truth. So would you stand with me and let us, let us go into a time of worship, recognizing what Christ has done for us and recognizing the sacrifice that was made.